breath man okay hi hello we're gonna tell everyone right now we are having extreme technical difficulties and our recording platform has a significant audio lag it's upwards of five seconds so we're gonna do our best and um yeah we might not hear from cat a lot this episode but we'll we'll see how far we can get i'm sure a lot of people are like yay (laughs) I'm not going to say their name because I didn't get permission. I don't think she'll care. But one of our listeners just listened to all 114 episodes in like a month. And she loves you. Really? She loves you. She says that um, uh, she, she's got like the same personality as you and that like she really likes the drama that you bring to your episodes. So, um yeah. Oh, that's nice. Yes, so she's probably unhappy, but we'll we'll see how um we'll see how this goes. So, uh today we're going over part 3 and then this is the last part of Richard Speck. Part 1, I went over his early life. Uh, Part two, I went over the murders and all of, not all of the gory details, but I went over uh, the murders. And so now we are starting out the morning after the murders and um, just kind of going into the investigation and the manhunt and the trial today. So remember, this was uh, Wednesday, July 13th, 1966 that Richard Speck uh, murdered these eight young women. And so we're at Thursday, July 14th. Um, this is the the very next morning, and the word of the murders is absolutely everywhere. Oh, I bet. The headline of the Chicago News Tribune read, Eight Nurses Strangled. And uh, the subheadline was, quote, Student Building Invaded by Sex Maniac. Oh my goodness. That's, I, I think, I think, cause you know, we've been recording these, we've had like a couple of weeks between recordings, but like, I still remember from when we last recorded that that was like a lot of people in one building that he killed. It's awful. And what's interesting, uh, especially so because I just covered this case, one of the reasons that Richard Speck's murder and everything, not just because of the brutality um, of the murders committed, but um, this was the biggest crime since Howard Unra's Walk of Death in 1949. And you did that episode, didn't you? Yes. So I just thought that was an interesting tie-in that um, we were able to to bring it back around kind of, and that kind of tells you um, the state of the press at the time. They're still not used to these big bloody stories being on the front page. So the public can't keep their eyes away and the media can't get enough. So um, as promised by Detective Flanagan at the end of episode two, 
um, they began their manhunt immediately. At 6.30 a.m., Corazon, the one survivor of the brutal attack, was giving her first official statement. Understandably, she was absolutely hysterical, and that combined with her heavy accent and her um, not solid grasp on English, it made her statement difficult. Her house mother and Josephine Chan, the nursing director, were allowed to go with her as support. And this is really sweet, but Corazon emphasized she really wanted to do whatever she could to help, which is so sweet, even though I know she had to have been traumatized. Oh, I bet. That must have been horrible for her to relive and and tell the detectives and all of that. Right. Um, Despite her her, uh, struggles with communication, they were able to get a good description out of her. She described the attacker as approximately 25 years old, six feet tall, with a short, uh, dirty blonde hair, a southern drawl, and he was about 160 pounds. So very tall, very lanky. Um, after her interview, she ended up going to the hospital and she was placed under police guard and heavy sedation. It, I'm assuming this is to deal with her hysteria. They All throughout the investigation and through the trial, they were extremely aware of uh, what Corazon had been through. And they were very cognizant that they needed to protect her at all costs because they did not want her going into a trauma response and forgetting anything from that night. Oh, that was really nice of them. So remember part two, um, the police officer who was first on scene, who was kind of flagged down by one of the neighbors, was Jack Wallenda. He recalled that he saw full grown men break down in tears because he was he was struggling personally because these grieving families want answers for what happened to their daughters. And of course, he can't give it to them. But also, as I mentioned in part two, when the families were coming in to identify the bodies, he realized as the families were coming in that he actually personally knew almost every single one of these girls, which made this so much harder for him. Oh, I bet. Homicide detectives decided to get the burglary division involved in the, on the investigation as well because they suspected that a known burglar in the area might be the suspect. I did not see anything that said that Richard was breaking into any places in the days leading up to this. It also wouldn't surprise me because he did that before. Um, They also determined that whoever had done this had to be local or at least very familiar with the area because not very many people knew that the nurses lived in those townhomes. And I think I just barely touched on this in part two, but Obviously, Richard was local to the area. He was hanging out around the area of the Union Hall trying to get a job. He was frequenting the bars and the inns in the area. But one day while he was uh, wandering down that area, he actually did see the nurses leaving for work one morning. So he had actually seen the nurses outside and identified the house that they had come from. So he knew these girls were there. So the police, knowing that uh, this guy had to be local... And uh, that possibly he was a burglar. They start canvassing, knocking on doors, trying to get as much information as they possibly can. Uh, One of the detectives ended up, because he knew that the undesirables in the neighborhood, 
kind of hung out around the gas stations, he hit up a couple gas stations. If you remember in part two, actually, that was part one. Sorry. Um, he was trying to find a place to put his bags while he didn't have a place to stay. And he ended up keeping them at a Shell gas station overnight. Oh. So the police asked the gas station attendant if they saw anyone matching the description. The six foot tall, about 25. The gas station attendant said he he actually did recognize that. He said, you know, there was a guy who stored his bags overnight here from the 12th to the 13th. I talked to him the morning of the 13th when he came to pick up his bags. And I remember that he mentioned he was muttering something about a damn ship or like an ammunition ship or something about a ship. And this particular detective was familiar with the Merchant Marines and he knew about the Union Hall. And so he was like, oh, this guy's talking about ships. Let's go to the Union Hall because maybe he's a sailor. Oh. So by 9 a.m., the detectives were at the Union Hall. So like within two and a half hours, they're narrowing down their focus pretty quickly. And they go looking for the port agent and they say, hey, we have this guy with this description. Does it ring any bells? He takes a moment to think about it, which I actually appreciate because he actually thought about his answer. And he said there was only one man that fit that description. And it was our friend. And that man's name was Peter Crowell. Oh. Peter, oh, geez, I'm breaking my desk, um, had shipped out on July 11th. And this was before the attacks had taken place. So with that information, detectives are like, oh, well, maybe the guy who stored his bags at that station, maybe he's not the one we're looking for. So they hit the streets again. And they kind of loop back around to the gas station again. And they end up talking to the attendant who had actually talked to Richard the night before. They asked for more information, anything. And he said that he assumed the guy was a sailor and that he had, he, the gas station attendant, had referred him to a specific rooming house, but he had let him keep his bags behind. Um, okay. Detectives kind of still feel good about this. So they start checking around more places. And they end up going to a different gas station, which was also one that Richard had stopped by that night. Apparently, Richard had actually stopped here before the Shell station, but his behavior was so weird, the clerk refused to allow him to keep his things there. Uh, the, that clerk said that this man did mention something about shipping out um, in a few days, and the man said that he had some weird tattoos on his arms. One of the things that was extremely identifiable about Richard, and I didn't really go into very much detail about this, was his tattoos. He had a lot of really bad prison tattoos. One of his most prominent tattoos on his arms was one on his left forearm that said born to raise hell. Oh, that tattoo specifically drew a lot of attention from people. It also um, becomes one of the things that Richard is identified by is this um, it, they're literally stick and poke tattoos on his arms. Side note, apparently he had like a really crude, um, badly drawn penis on his leg. A badly drawn penis? Like a, a tattoo, a penis tattoo on his leg. That's ridiculous. Okay. Um, so with this information, the police end up going back to the Union Hall and they tell the port agent that, okay, there's now been a second sighting of the guy we're looking for after you're saying that this Peter Crowell guy shipped out. Did he actually get on this ship or did he miss it? 
And I think the way that they phrase this question, suddenly the port agent is like, wait. And he starts digging through his trash bin and he goes, I I completely forgot about this, but I sent two seamen down to a ship a couple of days ago. One of the guys wasn't needed and he came back and he was angry about it. And this was, remember, Richard ended up getting sent down on a, an assignment where when he showed up, they said that somebody had already taken the place. So the port agent pulls out the assignment slip from his trash can and the name on the slip is Richard Speck. Oh, so now they're finally kind of getting the uh, the right name out there. So he also had contact information, like emergency contacts, like we all do. And the names on his file and the address on file was the address of Martha and Jean Thornton. So this is going back to his sister, Martha, the people who are fighting tooth and nail to get him out of their damn house. So... With that information, the police are able to request Richard's full union file. They want to know more about him. They want employment records. And with the employment records, remember, comes the information that he had been fired from a ship for assaulting an officer, as well as descriptions of his weird-ass tattoos. The little tattoo of the... The tattoos keep coming back. And the details from his union file about the tattoos match... Uh, matched the gas station clerk's description of his tattoos. So now they're connecting this weird guy who's acting kind of strange with somebody who um, was a seaman is now unaccounted for. So now they have kind of a mission. They are going to start going to every, they're going to go door to door because in his union file, Remember, there are notes saying that he constantly drinks. No matter how much he's reprimanded, no matter how much they tell him to stop, he won't stop drinking. So now the police are like, ah, let's go check with every inn and tavern and rooming house in this area and we're going to find this guy. Good for them. So, meanwhile, we're going to go back to Richard, where that morning Richard woke up and went right back to drinking because... What else is he going to do with his life? I don't know. He bought back a watch that he had pawned a few days ago using the money he had stolen from the girls, by the way. And he went to a bar to drink for a little bit. And suddenly, uh, remember the night that he had killed the girls, he had crossed over the Chicago River and he had thrown his switchblade in. He had another large buck knife that he would regularly carry on him. He did not bring that to the town home with him that night. But he pulls this giant buck knife out and he gives it to the bartender. And he says, uh, will you hold this for me? Because I don't want to be seen with it. Which, if I'm the bartender, I'm like, um, what'd you do with the knife? Why don't you want to be seen with it? Exactly. Except... Bartender didn't question it, and I don't understand why, but okay. Yeah, that's kind of dumb. Despite the bartender not asking, Richard said he killed several people in Vietnam with the knife. And then he told his little lie about stabbing someone on a ship again, except this time it happened in Vietnam and not on the boat he was on before. Okay. And with that information... The bartender takes the knife and just kind of tucks it behind the bar. 
So it's just still weird. That is totally weird that he would even take it. And then Richard just reaches over and grabs it again and then holds it up against the bartender's throat. And then with the knife to the bartender's throat, he says, not even kidding, if I was going to kill somebody, this is how I would do it. He makes the weirdest decisions. He does make the weirdest decisions. And the bartender just kind of pushes Richard away and he's like, um, yeah, I don't like to mess with people with knives. So crazy. And the bartender is so, so like casual. He's just like, oh, I don't mess with people with knives. Oh, my goodness. And Richard just seems to think that this whole thing is a joke. He's a weirdo. So then Richard, again, with the $1,300 check, says, hey, I have a $1,300 check. Um, do you mind cashing this for me? And the bartender goes, um, I don't think I have that kind of cash, so uh, maybe not. Yeah. Honestly, like, Richard is, like, chaotic evil and just kind of, like, getting away with it. So then... <laughs> This knife that Richard literally just had held up to this guy's throat. He takes it and sells it to the guy drinking next to him for a dollar. And then Richard just keeps on drinking. Oh, my goodness. And he does his he does his normal uh, couple of drinks here and we'll go to the next bar and a couple of drinks there and go to the next bar. And that's all he does with his life. He just goes to bars and he drinks. So while he's drinking... At uh, the Sokograd, a news report breaks about the murdered nurses. And so Richard turns to the guy drinking next to him and he says, it must have been a dirty motherfucker that done it. Which is like, that's what? Yeah. You'll see that Richard has like a need to get people's feedback on this. So weird. Yeah, so him and the same guy kind of move on to the next bar where the bartender was talking with a couple of customers there about the murders. And Richard just kind of like walks up to them and breaks into their conversation. He's like, yeah, it must have been some kind of sex maniac to do something like that. Which, again, is weird. Everything about him and this is so weird. Richard starts doing like the first smart thing I think he's done in a little bit. He starts planting alibis. Um, he mentioned once earlier in the day that he, he like started building the alibi slowly. He started out by saying, man, I have such a hangover from last night. I was drinking all night and basically saying that he was so blackout drunk. He couldn't have been the crazy person that committed this. Then a little bit later, he adds more saying that he had picked up a sex worker that night and he had paid her, but he got so drunk that he couldn't get anything from her. So she's kind of got like free wages. Okay. All the while, while Richard is telling these stories, police are going around town knocking on doors looking for him and somehow missing him as he went from bar to bar. Like, the police cross paths with him several times. Really? Yeah, you'll see just how many times. It is ridiculous. So... Police were following up on the lead from the Union Hall, and around 3 p.m. that day, one of the police officers called Richard's sister, and Gene ends up answering the phone. And so the police officer, thinking on his feet, says, um, hey, I'm calling from the Union Hall. I have an assignment for Richard. Uh, we're trying to reach him. And Gene, 
who was like, fuck yeah, let's get rid of this guy. He says, um, Jean's, uh, he says, uh, Richard's not here. And the detective says, well, can you please get him to call us? Because, um, he needs to respond to this immediately if he's going to ship out on this assignment. So Gene says his exact response was, thanks for calling. We need to get this guy on a ship and out of our hair. I'll see what I can do. <laughs> so Gene is like seeing the light at the end of the tunnel here. Gene ends up calling and he's able to get in touch with Richard. And he says, hey, the Union Hall is calling about a job opportunity. You need to call them back and speak with Mr. Olson. So Richard calls the Union Hall and Mr. Olson, the real Mr. Olson, is on the phone. Mr. Olson is a legitimate man who actually does work for the Union. The police had coached Mr. Olson on what to say. So when Richard called, he told Richard that he had a spot on the Sinclair Great Lakes for Richard and they would hold the assignment until he got there. The problem with this is that Richard knew damn well that ship had left days ago because when you get sent out on an assignment that you didn't need to go to because someone else was already assigned to it and they turn you away you remember the name of that ship and they couldn't even bother to give him the name of a different ship they went with the same one that they had sent Richard two days before and in his anger he remembered the name of that ship interesting so the problem here is that they tipped their hand to Richard and he's smart enough that he knew that this wasn't real so Richard did not give himself away he told Olsen that he was downtown drinking at uh, a bar and he'd be there in about an hour Richard hung up and gets right to work setting up more stories for himself. First, he calls Gene back and he, he says, hey, you know, that job that they were offering me, it was only good for a day. I'm looking for something more than that. So I turned it down. He turned to his drinking buddy and he goes, hey, I got a job on a ship and I need to head out tonight. So I need to check out of my room and I need to go stop by my sister's place and grab some money first. He and his friend go up to his room. Richard starts hastily packing his bags, and he and his friend carry them downstairs. Richard tells the man at the front desk, hey, I just took an assignment on a boat. It's leaving for tomorrow, and I just need to check out early. Remember, he had only stayed in this room, I think, two nights at this point, and he had paid for a full week. So they checked him out early. Uh, Richard was kind enough to not ask for a refund on the rest of his rent. He just let the guy keep it. Oh, And then Richard did what any reasonable man running from the cops does, and he played a game of pool. <laughs> Richard. What a dick. Get it? Richard dick. Oh, man. <laughs> I've been kind of waiting for you to say that one. Uh-huh. Um, so while Richard was playing this game of pool, three plainclothes officers walk into the bar. And they go to the bartender with the description that Corazon had gave them, which was actually a very good description. And they said, hey, do you recognize anybody with this description? And the bartender goes, oh, no, no one, no one with that description doesn't ring a bell. Richard was 10 feet away from them. What? Playing a game of pool while they are looking for him. Oh, my goodness. So then, 
Richard finishes up his game of pool and he goes and he sits at the end of the bar, just a couple chairs away from these officers. And he had called himself a taxi because remember, he has to keep his story going. And he had called it from a company called Commercial Cab, which was not the same company as like the city cabs. So the taxi comes in, like the driver comes in and he just kind of calls out. He's like, a commercial cab. And Richard raises his hand. He's like, just a minute. So he casually gets up and walks out the door with his friend. By the way, his drinking buddy, not doing well. He is hung over his shit. He is not having a good day. And Richard just keeps like pumping more alcohol in this guy. Oh my goodness. So um, they both head out to the cab. They load up their bags. He tells the taxi driver, hey, can you take us to this bar just a couple of blocks away? Because he needs to drop his friend off. Then he turns back as the car is starting. He turns to his friend and reminds him again, hey, remember, I'm leaving. I'm leaving on a trip. Um, I got assigned a ship. And so I'm leaving. I just need to stop at my sister's house first. So they get to that bar. They drop his friend off. And then the taxi driver says, okay, where am I taking you? And Richard goes, um, take me, take me up north. And the guy, the taxi driver's like, um, I need an address or like a street. And Richard's like, I'm gonna level with you, dude. Um, take me to the scummiest, nastiest, poorest part of town because that's where my sister lives. And if you didn't gather as much, Richard is talking out his ass right now. Because he just needs to get out of this part of town. So the the driver is like, "Um, do you mean Old Town? And Richard's like, yes, Old Town. So they drive up to North Chicago. Uh, This is about 20 miles away from the town home and the murder scene. But this was only a couple of miles from where those riots that I talked about at the beginning of part two were breaking out. Oh, yeah. This is not a part of town that a skinny, clean-cut white man is going to be. Yeah. So the the taxi gets up there. They're driving around. And the taxi driver keeps going, does this look familiar? Does this look familiar? And Richard's like, I I don't know. I don't know. It's starting to look familiar. And eventually the taxi driver's like, "Um, we're running out of old town. And Richard goes, oh, you know, this, this building, this looks like the right one. So the driver just lets him out in the parking lot of, uh, high, I won't say high rise, but it's an apartment complex that's several stories high. Okay. And as he drives away, the taxi driver just said uh, Richard was standing in the parking lot, kind of looking around with his bags at his feet. But the taxi driver just left him. Like I mentioned, this is not a place where Richard would normally be. He stands out like a sore thumb. And there was a resident that lived on the 11th floor of this building. Her name was Fanny Jo Holland. Every day at around 4 to 4.30 p.m., she would stand at the window and she would watch her husband walk to work because they would wave goodbye to each other, which is really cute. But also if he forgot anything like cigarettes or keys, he'd call up to her and she would toss them down to him. Oh, that's nice. So this was their daily routine. This also happens to be when Richard was dropped off. So Fanny Jo got a good look at this weird-ass white boy standing in front of her apartment. Oh, yeah, for sure she would have. 
she said that what really caught her attention was that this commercial cab was not the normal color of like the city cabs. And that's what grabbed her attention at first. And then this man gets out of this car dressed in a white shirt, dark slacks. And she said from the 11th floor, she could see the blue markings of tattoos on his arms. Oh, she said she watched him walk a few blocks down the road, constantly looking all over the place. And the only thing that I can think of is that he was he didn't know where the fuck he was. He he was trying to escape the law. And so he had a taxi driver drop him down in the middle of fucking nowhere. And now he was trying to figure out what to do with his life. Yeah. So he finally comes upon a flop house. And this was the Raleigh Hotel. And we're going to go back in time just a little bit. Once upon a time, the Raleigh Hotel was actually a very nice establishment. Um, After the Great Chicago Fire in 1871, Chicago was obviously rebuilding itself. In 1882, the Raleigh Hotel, then known as Menstone Apartments, was built to be Chicago's first luxury high-rise apartment building. So this apartment building was eight stories tall and had 12 units. And these were huge apartments with basically every high-end amenity you could think of. They were eight or nine bedrooms. They had a library, a parlor, a kitchen, and separate service entrances. Wow. So over the years, um, unfortunately, the apartments ended up getting broken down into smaller and smaller units. And eventually, the Menstone apartments, these luxury, gorgeous apartments, were converted into a transient hotel. Um, And I believe this is when it was renamed to the Raleigh Hotel. And it was primarily used for, um, like I said, transient homing. The local theater crews would use it as they traveled through town. And in 1952, a fire completely destroyed the building. And all 125 residents were homeless. Oh, my goodness. And unfortunately, many of those residents were European immigrants who were immigrating to America and they spoke zero English. So now all of them are homeless on the streets. Oh, that's So the sucks. Raleigh Hotel is not the best scene. Um, so by the time 1966 rolled around, the Raleigh Hotel was a full-blown rundown flop house. And so this is where Richard went to hide. He goes to the registration office. It's about 4.45 p.m. now. And Otha Hewlinger was the live-in manager. And she was described as, like, smarter than the average hotel worker. Like, she was not easily fooled. She was a little older. I believe she was in her 50s. So, like, uh-huh. she had some street smarts. She had life experience. And no one was going to put one over on her. Yeah. So when Richard checks in, he checks in under the name David Staten. And Otha asks if he has work because she wants to make sure that he can pay for this place. He says no, but he would soon and that his sister was going to take care of him in the meantime. She, he told her that um, him and his brother-in-law had gotten in a huge fight. His brother-in-law had kicked him out of the house and he just needed somewhere to stay to lay low for a little bit. Not entirely untrue, but just untrue enough that I can call him a damn liar. (laughs) So Otha 
kind of pries a little bit. She goes, oh, oh, really? Where, where's your sister live? Like, what's your sister's name? And Richard gives her Martha's real name and Martha's real address. And Otha writes that shit down. And so Richard rents his room. He rents it for a week. And his uh, his room had a mattress, a sink with hot and cold water, a nightstand, and a small refrigerator. It's not like a fancy room, but enough to crash in for a little bit. Yeah. So he goes upstairs. He kind of gets settled in. And shortly after settling in, he he starts to leave and he says he's going to go get something to eat. And he offers to buy Otha coffee or a burger. Otha was on a diet, like legitimately she was actually on a diet. Uh-huh. And she says, no, I'm on a diet and I don't really like coffee, but thank you. That's nice. He ignored her. He bought her coffee anyway and then forced her to take it, which seems weird. While he's out, uh, he calls his sister just to check in. He's like, hey, I'm I'm down here on Clark Street and I'm just um, I'm drinking with Red. Red is the guy that he was drinking with all day. And I really hope he's not drinking with Red because poor Red is about to die of alcohol poisoning with how much liquor he was drinking. Um, again, we know that's a lie. Clark Street is down where the townhomes are located. And Richard is very far away from this. OK, so. While Richard is planting all these alibis everywhere, placing himself where he's not, police are still waiting for him to show up at the Union Hall. Because remember, Richard had told them he'd be there in about an hour. Yeah. And by 7 p.m., they figure he's not showing up. So they start splitting up the men to canvas lodging houses some more. So they're just splitting up. They had everybody on this. And, you know, they have the right idea going and checking in bars because wouldn't you know it, Richard went out drinking again. Wrong part of town, right idea. So now this was this. Remember in part one, uh, part two, at the very beginning, I talked about the riots and uh, day two, things were really ramping up. This was day two of the riots. And so police all over the city were being called in to work double shifts to cover the chaos. This was the night that the 300 youth started um, really rioting again. And this is a couple of miles from where Richard is, but police from all over the city are being called in. At 3 a.m., Richard brings a sex worker back to the Raleigh Hotel. He was... Shit face drunk. Of course. And the front desk attendant, who is not Otha, Otha worked during the day. This man worked at night. The night attendant um, is like, hey, I need to check you in. And Richard was too incoherent to say anything. But the girl says, uh, his name is Richard something. And so the clerk is like, okay, I got to go check the registration book to make sure that you guys are legit. And while they're gone, Richard runs them upstairs. The clerk kind of thought, you know, I don't want to wake up Otha over something so dumb. Like, this guy obviously seems to know, like, where he's going. He's probably actually a resident. He's just so drunk he doesn't know where he's going. So he didn't end up waking up Otha. But about a half hour later, the girl comes back downstairs and she says, hey, that guy was asleep, but um, I want you to know he has a gun in his room. And the clerk goes, what was his name? She goes, I don't, Richard something, I don't know. So the clerk kind of sits on that. And in the morning, 
uh, Otha wakes up and she's going to relieve him. They're going to switch shifts. And he goes, hey, um, last night this weird thing happened. This girl said that this guy has a gun. And Otha, by the description of the guy, she's like, that's David Staten. And uh, I don't like his shit. So she ends up calling the police. And she says, hey, there's somebody in my hotel with a gun. I want you to come take care of this. Yeah. So police responded. They knocked on his door. They didn't get an answer. So the porter unlocks the door for them. Richard is passed the fuck out on the bed, fully dressed, like in his slacks and his shirt, like fully dressed. And from where the police are standing, they can see the pistol peeking out from under his pillow. What an idiot. The police go and they wake him up and they're like, dude, what you doing? (laughs) And Richard, um, Richard is like, I don't have a knife or anything. And they're like, uh, we asked about a gun. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, Richard said that if he, he never had a gun and the girl must've just left it behind. I love how he blames it on the girl and she left it behind. Then Richard did what he always does. He embellished some more details and he makes himself a victim. And he says, you know, that girl also stole $10 from me. Ten fucking dollars. <laughs> he can't even lie correctly. That's a whole week's worth of rent. Yeah, but still. So the the police are like, um, t- what's your name, dude? And so his wallet is actually sitting on like the nightstand close to them. He's like, my wallet's right there. You can take a look at it. And so they... They open it up. He says, my name is Richard Speck. And his uh, Siemens card is in there. It has his photo on it. This is photo ID. And they go, "Um, why are you checked in under a different name? Why are you checked in as David Staten? And you're, what I was thinking is like, holy shit, these guys know that they're looking for Richard Speck, right? They found Richard Speck. They're going to take him into custody. Except these police had no idea who the hell he was. Of course. So Richard says that he checked in under a different name because he had just gotten off a ship and he and some of the guys had been playing a a dice game and he had won a lot of money from them and they were pissed at him and he was afraid that they were going to come after him. So he used a fake name downstairs to make sure that they couldn't find him. And then he says one more time, I never had no gun. That girl must have left it here and blamed it on me. So the police noted that like Richard never hesitated with a single answer. He didn't seem uncomfortable. He answered them clearly. Uh, He seemed alert. And so they believed every word he said. And because these police were working double shifts, the entire city of police was working double shifts at this point. They were tired. They were at the end of a long shift. Technically, seizing a weapon from someone is a lot of paperwork. And they just didn't want to deal with the paperwork. Are you serious? So they took the gun from Richard, but they never filed a report on it. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So the initial call that they were called out on was a report of a man with a gun. And in their report, of like their response they said that the claim was unfounded basically in legal speak meaning that we showed up and there was no gun so dumb 
So meanwhile, um, the detectives working on the case are struggling to find a photo of Richard. They want to find a photo of him. They have his name. They need a photo. So they're working with the Coast Guard because they're like, we need a copy of like his Siemens card photo. And Corazon is working with the police again. She's going through a photo uh, book of mugshots and she's trying like they're asking her please tell us if you see who did this because they're figuring this guy this can't be his first offense they were right he had just never been arrested in chicago before um so she's looking through she's found one guy she's like this this kind of looks like him but she had not actually fully positively identified any one person yet the detectives are able to get a copy of uh richard's semen photo Okay. So they take a copy of this photo, they mix it in with a few other photos, and they give, I believe, six photos to Corazon. And they say, they say, how about these photos? Do you see him here? And the second they put the photos down, Corazon shot straight up in her chair, and she looked directly at the photo of Richard, and she said, this is him. Wow. So from there, she actually said, she said there were a few things different. His hair was a different length in the photo. And um, she met, she, like, there were details about Richard had deep pocked acne scars in his face that just didn't really show yeah. up in the photo. So they decided that they were going to have her help them create a uh, a sketch that looked like Richard, but more accurate for what he looked like right then. And so she did her best. Um, she didn't really know the English words for things like crew cut. Um, she also didn't know the word for pockmark, but she was able to get a sketch put together that she approved of. But she was like, yes, this is him. Good. And that's the photo that they started um, distributing. And that's when they officially named Richard Speck as their prime suspect. No. Now that they had a person positively identified, um, they needed to compare information from the scene. So now, remember in part one, I mentioned when Richard had applied for his Siemens card, he had been through a full physical exam and his fingerprints were taken. The Chicago PD needed those fingerprints. After the Coast Guard takes the fingerprints, they get sent to the FBI. And uh, there were problems with um, airlines were on strike. So there was this whole question of how do we get these fingerprints? Because computers don't exist. Um, How do we get the fingerprints from Quantico to Chicago? And it was like one of these like friend of a friend kind of things that like um, an FBI agent knew a pilot working for one of the airlines that was not on strike and asked him to personally fly it down. And they got the fingerprints and they went to work comparing them to the fingerprints at the scene. They also uh, deployed more police officers looking for Richard. They, um, they were able to determine that Richard had rented a room at the shipyard inn. So they staked out a couple police to wait there for him. They also put a couple at Richard's sister's house in case he showed up there. And Martha and Jean cooperated with police fully. They helped put together a timeline of Richard's recent movements from like the time he left Dallas until now. And 
Um, with all the information they called together, they were able to track down Richard's taxi trip up north. So they're, they're closing in on Richard. They're getting closer to where he is. By Friday evening, Richard went out for coffee again. And this time while he was out, he grabbed a copy of the evening newspaper. Again, he forced Otha to take a cup of coffee that she didn't even like. And he started talking with her about the murders and how horrible they were. And that evening's newspaper was the first newspaper to run the sketch. I think Richard was looking for a reaction out of someone, which he does very often. And he even he like shows the sketch to Otha. And Otha looks at the newspaper and she's like, huh, he he looks a little Filipino, don't you think? And Richard like snatches the newspaper back. He's like, give that to me. And so Otha sees her chance and she kind of skedaddles away so she can go make herself dinner. And so Richard starts talking to the night porter about the murders. The night porter actually mentioned that he had been out during the day walking around the area and he had seen several police patrolling a couple of blocks away with rifles like they were out patrolling the streets with big guns readily visible. They were obviously on the lookout for something. Now, this was the third day of the riots. But we're about six miles from those. That's a little bit further than where police probably were in the thick of things. So I think that these police were looking for Richard. They knew he was in the area because of his traffic ride, his taxi ride. And so I think that's who they were looking for. Richard, that night, goes out drinking again. None of us are surprised. That's just what he does. Police are scouring bars in the area. They are closing in on him. And um, there was a bar about three blocks away from the Raleigh Hotel called the Pink Twist, which I like. It's a very cute name. Richard was drinking at the Pink Twist until about 8 p.m. And at 8 p.m., he decided to move on to his next bar. That's just what he does. He spends a couple hours one place, moves on. At 8.15 the police went into the pink twist looking for Richard. As Richard was crossing the street when he left the pink twist, he actually came across two winos who are drinking on the street corner and he struck up a conversation with them because Richard's a friendly guy. He likes to talk with people. One of the men there was just kind of like a guy just looking to get drunk, but the other man was a one-eyed hombo named Claude Lunsford. As you can imagine, being a one-eyed hobo came with some interesting stories. Uh, he told Richard that he'd come to Chicago by way of Dallas by hopping a freight train. As they had gotten to this discussion about hopping freight trains, Richard saw the police walk by and go into the bar. And now Richard is extremely interested in the mechanics of how to hop a freight train. So he asked Claude... Um, who, you know, I go back and forth. Um, One-Eyed Lunsford <laughs> is how he's referred to most of the time. He asked One-Eyed Lunsford, uh, how long are you planning on staying? And he goes, I don't five minutes and I might catch the next train out. And Richard goes, let me tag along with you. Can you wait here for a minute? I'm just going to go grab my bags. Let's, let's head out of town together. So Richard goes back to the Raleigh Hotel 
He goes upstairs and he packs like a shopping bag full of clothing. He walks downstairs and he goes past Otha and the night clerk. And he says, yeah, I'm just um, I'm just going to do some laundry. I'll be back later. And off into the night, Richard goes again. 15 minutes later, police walk into the Raleigh Hotel with a photo of Richard Speck. And they go to Otha and they say, hey, does this guy look familiar? And immediately she goes, oh, my God, he just left. Richard's walking down the road with his two buddies. And one eye Lunsford is asking him questions about Dallas because obviously he's a hobo. He's uh, skeptical of other people. And I mean, Richard grew up in Dallas. He knows the neighborhood. So he kind of passes this little test. And one on Lunsford decides that, um, you know, this guy's not lying, but I don't like him. He said that the more he talked, the more he wanted to get away from him. And his reasoning is this. And this is a quote. He said, he jumped from one sentence to another, one subject to another, never finishing one thing before he got on to another. And his mouth was funny. It was always half open. He had kind of a fish mouth. And <laughs> that was something that several people noted about Richard is that... um. He had this kind of like dumbass look on his face a lot of the time where he would just like stare with his mouth open. Um, so the three of them went to the Star Hotel, which sounds nice and pleasant, but it's not. It's kind of the worst of the worst. They had a policy of not asking questions because when you start asking your customers questions soon enough, you don't have any more customers. So that kind of tells you the types of people that are staying at the Star Hotel. In addition, the rooms were more like cages. They were cubicles made out of like chicken wire that were about seven by five feet. They had a cot and a footlocker and that was it. And the tops of these cages also had chicken wire because neighbors would reach over the walls and steal from each other. Uh, this is where Richard would be spending his night. And meanwhile, um, the Chicago's foremost fingerprint expert had finally gotten a hold of Richard's fingerprint card. And he started working right, I think it was about 10 p.m. that they finally got to him. He worked all night long, and 5 a.m. on Saturday, July 16th, he was able to match a print from Richard's right middle finger to one found on a door inside the house. When that happened, news spread through the police force quickly. They're like, we have a match. We know that this man was inside this house. This, this kind of gave new life to the investigation because you have all of these worn out police officers who for three days straight are knocking on doors, missing him by 15 minutes. They're not getting any leads, but now they know that this is their guy because his fingerprints were found inside the house. Also on Saturday was the first of the funerals for the girls. Gloria's funeral was first. So um, I, I, don't, I don't talk about all of the girls' funerals, but this one was just the the first so seated behind her family so obviously her family was in the front everybody's mourning they're dressed in black but directly behind the family was all the nurses in their white uniforms 
so cute. Like they all did it as like a statement and to stand united together. Um, And the hospital also offered a $10,000 reward for information leading to the arrest of the murderer. So police are moving quickly. They had a series of internal briefings and a press conference where they publicly named Richard Speck as the prime suspect and the FBI issued an all points bulletin saying that everyone needed to be on the lookout for Richard. And at that time, Richard was the FBI's most wanted man. Richard, meanwhile, is out doing what? Yep, Richard is drinking. And he's buying he's buying the newspapers that have his name and photo on them. He feels the walls closing in on him because now they have an actual photo of him. And the police are saying that this is our guy. It's not just like a, hey, be on the lookout for this man. It is This is his photo, like his real photo, not just the sketch. So he makes a decision that killing himself is really his only way out of this mess. So he finishes off the bottle of wine that he was drinking. He walks to the community bathroom at the end of the hall from his room at the Star Hotel. He breaks the wine bottle and he slashed open his left elbow and his right wrist. He then goes back to his cubicle, leaving a trail of blood behind him, which, by the way, no one cared about. Like people were walking over this trail of blood, didn't give a damn. And so he goes and he lays down to uh, let death take him. At about six, his direct neighbor comes home. This man had gone out and he had drink, he had worked for the day and uh, he had used his day's wages to buy himself some booze and he was settling in and he was drinking. And Richard, hearing his neighbor, asked for a drink and not, not an alcoholic drink. I think for the first time in his life, Richard wants water. And the man is irritated. He just worked a full day. Um, and he says, go buy your own alcohol, dude. And Richard says, no, I, I need water. So the man tells him, uh, walk yourself down the hall and get yourself some water. Leave me alone. Sometime around now, One-Eye Lunsford also saw Richard. And he goes like, uh, what happened? And Richard's like, I fell into a window. And One-Eye Lunsford is like, you know what? I'm, I'm fucking sick of this guy. I just want to get rid of him. I don't I don't care what happened to you, dude. And he happens to see. Remember, Richard had bought all of these newspapers with his photo on them. Lunsford sees this and he goes, oh, shit. So. He studies the photo and he's like, you know, the photos back then, not the best quality. So it made his hair look a little darker. You couldn't really see his acne scars, but like this guy was a dead ringer for Richard. So he goes down to a payphone and he calls the police and he says, hey, the guy you're looking for is in room 584 at the Star Hotel with blood all over the place. So finally, someone is calling the cops because they've seen him, right? Well, back then, the system for police dispatch was that the dispatchers answering the phones would log all the incoming calls and then they would radio police to go respond. For some reason. No one ever radioed for police to respond. So around midnight, Richard finally found the strength to stumble out of his room. And he ended up knocking into that neighbor that he asked for water from earlier. 
that man was tired of Richard's shit and he ended, he just kind of hit the emergency call button which brought the elevator operator over and they called the police um they said that they had an injured man everybody just assumed that he was drunk and had like smashed into something on accident they didn't think that he had tried to kill himself he was just another drunk who had gotten himself into an accident so he was taken to the hospital the two police officers that happened to respond to this call had not checked their bulletins, so they had no idea who they had in the back of their car. They dropped him off at the emergency room, where Richard was immediately admitted to the trauma unit. The physician working the trauma ward that night was a man named Dr. Smith. Dr. Smith, just a couple of hours before Richard had come in, had been on his dinner break, and he had actually been reading one of the newspapers, uh, one of the many newspapers that had come out with Richard's photo in it. So when this man was brought into the hospital, bloody, and the physician responded, he couldn't help but feel like this guy looked really familiar. So remember, Richard had slashed his left, uh, his left forearm. That's one of the places what his most distinctive tattoo, his born to raise hell tattoo was. The doctor decides to ask a nurse. He's like, hey, there's a newspaper sitting on my desk in my office. Can you please go get it for me? The nurse brings the paper back. The doctor holds the photo from the paper up to Richard's face. And it was the man in the photo. This was the guy. So the doctor starts cleaning off his arms because there's blood caked on them. And he uncovers the born to raise hell tattoo. And that's when Dr. Smith knew exactly who he had in his operating room. Obviously, people in the area are passionate about finding this monster, most especially hospital staff, nurses and doctors. I mean, he killed eight nurses. Of course, they're going to feel it. So Dr. Smith tried to get Richard's attention by smacking his face and going, hey, what's your name? What's your name? Um, he was too out of it to answer. So he reached up and he grabbed him. There's, um, there's a nerve that runs between the muscles of your neck and your shoulder. Being a doctor, he knew exactly where that pressure point was and he squeezed it really hard, which, uh, shocked Richard awake. And he said, what is your name? And Richard goes, Richard Speck. And, um, then he goes, can I get some water? And Dr. Smith goes, did you give those nurses any water? And then the doctor turned to the nurses in the room and he said, let's get to work and save this man. Because, you know, like Hippocratic oath, but also like, I bet that he wanted him to actually pay the price for what he did. And he couldn't do that if he died. So by 1 a.m., about 50 police cars were surrounding the hospital and they put leg irons on him and chained him to his hospital bed. Three FBI agents also responded. They were asked not to interrogate him by the DA. They needed to make sure everything was like clean and done by the book because they, they didn't want this guy getting off by any chance. Uh, the doctor obviously still has to go in and talk to him and treat him, but they instructed him, do not ask him anything about the crimes. And the doctor said, fine, I'll just ask him medical questions. So 
Richard at this point is awake and he's responsive, but he needed surgery to fix his arms. They were torn open. And so Dr. Smith just asked a couple of questions, like normal stuff that a doctor would need to know, like, where have you been staying? Have you been eating? Because he's going to need to be sedated. And those drugs, like they interact with things in your system. They need to know if you've eaten or drank anything because often they make you nauseous, which can make you throw up. So uh, Richard just responds that he hadn't eaten anything in a while, but he had recently been drinking, of course, because it's Richard. And Richard asks how long surgery would be. Um, They're kind of having a a normal doctor-patient conversation. And then Richard says, are you going to get the $10,000 reward? So Dr. Smith stops talking and decides to take Richard to surgery. He, I don't know if this was strictly necessary or if he was trying to torture him a little bit, but um, whatever drugs they administered to him to put him out, apparently they had to shove a tube down his throat. And um, Richard said, um, Richard said he didn't want to do that. And the doctor, uh, I think he said that he would rather have the doctor cut his arm off than have the tube shoved down his throat. And the doctor just kind of like forced it in anyway. They were able to uh, get the surgery taken care of. And what I thought was really interesting was that it took them three weeks for anyone to question him. Not because he was healing, but because of Miranda rights. We all know in the United States what Miranda rights are. Uh, Basically, you have to be informed of your right to remain silent, your right to legal counsel, blah, blah, blah. Well, Miranda rights were not a widespread rule at this time. And in fact, at the time that Richard committed the murder, the Miranda rule was only 30 days old. Because in June of 1966, just one month before Richard's uh, murder spree, In Miranda v. Arizona, the Supreme Court overturned the conviction of a man named Ernesto Miranda because his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination had not been preserved because he was never explicitly informed of his right to remain silent. So the Miranda rule was a brand new ruling. And in Chicago, the police were taking zero chances that their case might be overturned because of a Fifth Amendment violation. Um, I also mentioned earlier that there were concerns about Cora. They wanted to keep her safe because they didn't want her reliving the event over and over because they were afraid she might repress the memories. They were also concerned because the media was hunting her down and they were offering her large sums of money for her to share her story. And Cora came from a poor family the prospect of huge sums of money that she could use to help her family was huge for her. But she couldn't share her story because the second that she opens her mouth, you could not find a single impartial juror in the whole country. So the prosecution ended up putting her and her family in hiding. They put them in an apartment under fake names, 24-7 police protection to keep her from sharing the story. Along the same lines with the concern for media coverage, the judge actually issued an order heavily restricting media presence and coverage in the courtroom. This was the first order of its kind. 
he, the judge, said no recording devices, no sketch artists. Everyone would be searched for electronic devices before they could enter. No photographs, no releasing the jurors' names or photos, and no one in the courtroom could make public comments on the case during the trial. This is normal for us today. All of that is pretty normal besides the no recording devices because we've since changed that. But this was unheard of at the time. And it was so strict that the Chicago Tribune filed a lawsuit against the judge. And this lawsuit ended up making its way all the way to the Illinois Supreme Court. And they upheld the judge's rules. They said he has the right to rule this, which is just insane. Um, so the trial began on April 3rd, 1967. Uh, they were able to present fingerprint evidence as well as, I didn't mention this earlier, but while they were working through the house, they found two white t-shirts in the house that were Richard's. He had planned in advance so thoroughly that when he entered that home, he brought extra shirts because he knew how sweaty and bloody that night was going to be. And he knew that he couldn't leave the house looking like that. Cora testified. And she testified in detail of the whole night and what Richard did. And at the end of her testimony, the prosecutor asked if she saw the man who did this in the courtroom. And if she saw him, please point him out for the jury. And when that happened, Cora got up, she walked out of the witness box, she walked one foot in front of Richard, pointed directly at his face and said, this is the man. Like, I cannot imagine having to do that myself. I couldn't. Like, I could do it from the jury box, maybe. I'd be like, uh, that, that dude right there. But like to walk and go and stand literally looking him in the eye. So on April 15th, 1967, the jury deliberated for 49 minutes before finding Richard Speck guilty of eight murders. And then the judge subsequently sentenced him to death. Richard obviously appealed his case. It went all the way up to the Illinois Supreme Court, who upheld his conviction in November of 1968. However, in June of 1971, the Supreme Court reversed the death penalty, which meant that Richard had to be resentenced. So his sentence of execution was reduced from execution to 400 to 1,200 years in prison. Uh, it was subsequently reduced again to 100 to 300 years which was basically, it was eight consecutive sentences. So they were not concurrent. They were actually consecutive. He attempted parole seven times and he was denied every time. Thank God. The first time he was up for parole, they denied parole in seven minutes. Uh, so Richard never granted any press interviews because he said he hated the press, but he did exactly one press interview in 1978 for the Chicago Tribune. This was the first time he ever actually openly admitted to the murders, and he said he didn't feel anything during the murders. 
Interestingly enough, he actually did do another interview with John Douglas, as in like mind hunter John Douglas. And Richard told John Douglas a story about um, in prison, Richard was known as Birdman because there were a few instances where he he had like pet sparrows that would like fly into his cell and they were just his. So at one point he told John Douglas this story about a specific, it was an injured sparrow that had flown into his cell and he nursed this sparrow back to health. Once it was healthy, he, um, he actually tied a string around its foot and it would sit on his shoulder while he walked around. And one day a guard saw him with this sparrow on his shoulder and he said, come on, no pets allowed. So Richard looks at the guard. He says, I can't have it. And the guard says, no. So Richard takes the bird and throws it into a fan, killing it instantly. Well, so obviously the guard was horrified. And he was like, he was like, I thought you liked the bird. And Richard said, I did. But if I can't have it, no one can. Yeah, so Richard Speck died of a heart attack on December 5th, 1991, one day before his 50th birthday, which meant that he spent about 25 years behind bars. Unfortunately, Richard Speck served his time in prison at a time when inmates ruled the prison. The Illinois Department of Corrections was extremely corrupt for quite some time, and it went largely unnoticed. Um, Inmates had regular access to alcohol and hard drugs. They basically did whatever they wanted. And after Richard Speck's death, a video surfaced of Richard Speck, and this video caught the attention of a lot of people. Um, It featured Richard dancing around in women's underwear, snorting lines of cocaine, and performing oral sex on another inmate. In the video, Richard says, if they only knew how much fun I was having, they'd turn me loose. It made a lot of people mad. He had also taken hormones to change his body, so he actually had breasts. I've seen many different opinions on this, and I'm going to refrain from opining. Um, I have seen that he, the most common thing I saw is that he did this to protect himself. Um, He turned himself into what is known as a queen bee for protection. Uh, Basically, he would do sexual favors to keep himself safe. So that's as far as I'm going to go in that. In the video... Um, someone from behind the camera asked him, why did you kill those girls? And he said, it just wasn't their night. In the Chicago Tribune interview, he expressed remorse for what he did, but I don't think it was real because in this video, he laughs about it. He says he's not sorry. He specifically says, if you're asking if I feel bad, the answer is no. This was a two hour long video. I don't think you can find the full two-hour video anywhere, but there are short clips out there if you want to look for them. Um, I I saw a clip of him 
uh, sitting and talking. Uh, the clip of him saying it just wasn't their night. I saw that. Um, I also saw the clip of him doing cocaine and the, I just have to tell you the pile of cocaine on that table. Holy shit. It was a lot like, like I spilled sugar um, on the counter a lot. After Richard died, he was cremated and his ashes were spread in an undisclosed location because his sister was afraid that his grave would be desecrated and um, the family just didn't want to deal with that. So uh, he was burned. He was spread, um, I believe, in Joliet, but I don't even know where. And that was the end of Richard Speck's super shitty life in which he did shitty things. I got the feeling that it wasn't actually the family that spread the ashes. I think it was someone else. In a Reddit thread, and again, this is Reddit, so like, take this with a grain of salt, but I did see one Reddit user comment that um, they're from the hometown where Richard was from and that when the family was offered Richard's remains, they said, uh, thanks, but no thanks. And the prison ended up having to deal with him. So I want to say it was somebody in the Department of Corrections who ended up spreading his ashes, but I, I can't be absolutely certain on that. But um, that is a story that's been living in my head for, I think, two months now. I'm glad that that's out in the universe and all of you can hold this for me. All right. Well, hopefully we get the audio fixed for next week. Um, this has been painful to record. Um, I do not want to do this again. We will see you all later. Bye. Bye. <laughs>